Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double Edge Double Bill, where you get two film and or media discussions for the price of one, which is nothing. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to randomly select the yin and yang of a double feature. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for each episode. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani. And I am Tom... Oh, wait, sorry, no, Adam Thomas. (laughs) You have to check every time, just to be sure. Yeah. Uh, it's our, our first name, last name. It's always so confusing. I know. It's crazy. You'd think we were brothers or something if that, if that applied. Yes, uh, most likely. Uh, but interestingly, we still have a guest lingering around from our last episode. It is Sam Bratuxen. Sam, how are you? I'm doing good. My name is Sam Thomas. Damn it. I mean, Sam Bratuxen. <laughs> Brother? <laughs> we are secretly triplets separated at birth. Yeah. That's... The big twist. The reason Sam is here is because we just finished recording the Star Wars episode that just uh, aired about a week ago from when you guys are listening to this. Adam and I have been pondering, like, we want to have more than just the two of us on the show, but we always wondered, how would we reconcile the actual picking element of the show? Which, for those of you who don't know, this is your first episode. We Each of us will have either a two good movies or two bad movies and select a number between one and ten from each other's two choices to find the double feature that we will be covering for the episode overall. And so we figured, you know, since we have a guest, um, how about we give them the gun and they shoot and see how exactly we fare for this. So the topic for the week in honor of this week that we were releasing this, the movie action point is coming out. That's that movie where the jackass guys are reuniting. And if you look into it, you might find out that that movie is based on a true story. And that's not a lie at all, because there was an actual place called Action Point that was a real theme park that infamously had several horrible accidents happen, including deaths. So they're making a wacky comedy out of it. Hey, great. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah. Watch the Defunct Land YouTube series episode about Action Point. It's fascinating. It's, I can't believe that place even existed and still exists to this day under new management. But, in honor of this, we are doing a topic of based on a true story, which is basically movies that are based on true stories that you would figure, like, that doesn't seem quite right. I'm not sure how that would either be a true story, or if this is really those true events at all. Um, And uh, it's an interesting topic, and Adam's got the two good movies, and I've got the two bad ones. So, Sam, go ahead for Adam, pick a number between 1 and 10. 1 and 10? Alright, I'll do 4. Ooh, at number one, I had the 1979 Amityville Horror with the late, great Margot Kidder. Oh, that's interesting. What was the other choice? At number eight was 2006 Alpha Dog with the late, great Anton Yelchin. Wow, so either way, we would just been sad. That's fine. Adam. Yeah, right. That's what I was going for. I was going for, you know, because we're going we're gonna to quit. I figured go on a sad note. <laughs> Not number four ever chosen. 
Yes. I guess it's time for the bad movies. So, Sam, number between 1 and 10 for me. All right. You know what? If 4 ain't going to work, let's go up to 4 more and do an 8. All right. At number 8 directly, direct hit, Sam, um, is Wired, the John Belushi biopic uh, starring Michael Chiklis. (laughs) Yes. Which famously turned John Belushi's death into a weird Christmas Carol story of him. (laughs) <laughs> this is real. This is a real oh, movie. I know. I know. Which, oh, no. I mean, to be fair, if Sam had gotten closer to number two, it would have been Heaven's Gate. So at least this oh, would be a shorter Jesus sit. Christ. <laughs> God. When we go bad, we go yeah, pretty bad. Bad. You made us watch the holiday special, Adam. You, you have no least, right to talk. This is your punishment. Fucking lumpy. Yeah. Now, now I gotta. Yes, it's hard to track down, but I'll I'll help you with that. Um uh, but well, you know thank God. <laughs> but you know, uh Sam won't be joining us for the actual discussion, but thank you, Sam, for sealing our fates. <laughs> I'm very happy by this. Yes, Thanks, Sam. I love you very much. Thank you. <laughs> and you can yeah. find Sam anywhere at Brituxen, pretty much on the internet if you want to find him, like we said last episode. We'll be right back with our double feature. It's the kind of house they don't build anymore. A relic of a time when the world wasn't in such a hurry. When there was still time for a little charm and elegance. It has stood empty for a long while. And at the price, it is a bargain. For a growing young family, it is almost too good to be true. What do you think? I love it. I'm coming apart! Oh, mother of God, I'm coming apart! 28 days after the Lutz family moved into their dream house, they were running for their lives. What happened to them is an experience in terror you will never forget. And you will believe in the Amityville horror. And we are back. We have watched our two films. Before we go, Adam, you wanted to mention something at the start? Oh, yeah. just uh, I'm just getting over being kind of sick, and it's really hot here in Michigan right now, so I'm kind of sitting outside trying to enjoy the fresh air and the weather. So if anybody hears a you know, a little bird or a car drive by, that's why. So, yeah, let's start off with our first feature, Amityville Horror, which, you know, given our theme of based on a true quote-unquote story, um, Amityville yeah. Horror... Uh, is yeah i mean for those who don't know this is based on the infamous amityville case um which is based on the fact that now correct me if i'm wrong and the true thing is that the defeo family was murdered right that did happen yeah you know no Ron, ronald defeo did in fact murder his whole family yes. right but the from there we had the lutz family move in and there was a famous book that was written about the family that people have uh, doubted the paranormal aspects of Oh, yeah, to say the least. I mean, the Lutz family did the whole talk show circuit mm-hmm. after that. I mean, they made a mint of selling the story. And then, you know, as they dove back into the story of actually George Lutz, yeah, he might have been a con man. Yes, I would definitely recommend, personally, not to bury the lead, my favorite Amityville movie is the documentary My Amityville Horror, which follows one of the kids now that he's grown up. He's yeah, that really was really fucked up. good. He's really fucked up. Oh my god, it's he, such an amazing documentary. <laughs> it was really good, man. I just felt bad for the guy. Like, yeah, I, you could tell. I mean, 
whether he believes it or not, that dude's been through some shit. Yeah, and it really showcases him just as, like, an individual at this point, all that he's gone through. And it's weird where, like, he genuinely believes in what happened, but also realizes his parents were pieces of shit. So it's, it's, it's very nuanced, and it's a very interesting documentary. But uh, we are talking about the narrative film, The Amityville Horror, released in 1979, July 27th, 1979, directed by Stuart Rosenberg, uh, and starring the recently departed Margot Kidder, and James Brolin, as a couple who are in their, like, mid-30s, near-early 40s, who have uh, bought this house and are moving in with Margot Kidder's kids from a previous marriage, and spooky stuff starts to happen. And, of course, this is one of the most successful, especially independent films of its era, only costing $4.7 million and making 86.4, which is very successful in $79. Oh, that's crazy. That's yeah, really that's, that's really good. Now, I just want to get out of the way before we really get into the topic. Now, I know this was my choice for a good movie. I don't know that I think this is that good of a movie, but it is definitely a classic of the horror genre. And because we just lost Margot Kidder, I figured it fit with our topic. Well, yeah, and to be fair, like, right after we did our intro, a bit of behind-the-scenes stuff, folks, is that when I heard we were doing Amityville Horror, it was like, oh, I don't know, because last time I saw this movie, I was much younger. I had heard this is a famous you know, movie about a real-life thing, and I remember being disappointed when I was a kid. And I'll say this much, with this rewatch, it has definitely improved to where I would say it's at least a good movie, but it's not for any of the reasons I was still disappointed in, really, when I rewatched okay, it this time. Yeah, I'll give you that. It's a, it's a decent movie, but it's not scary, well, no, I don't think. Here's the thing. All of the overtly horrific stuff they try to do, with stuff like, oh, there are the eyes in the window, the famous scenes, um, mostly, uh, with the exception of probably the fly scene with the Rod Stagger priest. Uh, other than that, all the bigger overt horror things are garbage. Especially the last act of this movie is terrible. It's a really bad, like, <laughs> haunted house sequence, which I think is a shame, because the more grounded horror, I think, really works. I think it's mainly because James Brolin and Margot Kidder are a really believable good couple that you kind of feel invested in. Yeah, I agree with that. But then when Brolin, like you said, the last you know quarter of the movie or third, even if you want to call it that, when he goes crazy, he, he really hams it up. I, I don't necessarily think that it's that terrible, though. I think it seems believable to me as somebody who, you know, especially considering what we know about George Litz later, it seems believable, especially of, like, it feels less, like, you know, actually haunted as much as, like, it almost feels like he's a you know, abusive drunk is what he becomes when he's in the house. And I felt that some of that stuff was, honestly, believable, even in an over-the-top sense. And I think, honestly, if this were a more grounded horror movie, like the original Haunting or something like that, it would be a far better movie. Because whenever it gets too overtly over-the-top horror, in terms of some of these other sequences, it loses any steam. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Um, And, like you said, with the gimmicks that come out with the red eyes or the giant pig, or whatever, it's just, it's it's bad. (laughs) Also, (laughs) all of this priest stuff is pretty terrible. Like, yes. it's, it feels so secondary. It feels definitely like they were writing this movie and they're like, you know, The Exorcist is still super popular. Let's do that. And it, it doesn't really work. They're just like, hmm, we need some kind of priest that we can get antagonistic. You know, there's like some kind of head priest that everybody can be hateful about. Oh, how about let's get the mayor from Jaws to do that, but be a man of the cloth. It's literally, Murray Hamilton plays the exact same part here. Yeah, no, 100%. I kind of wish that his, like, 
whatever they call it, the little white collar that priests wear. I wish I had little anchors on it. Or they just yeah. goes up to Rod Stagger, just like, you want to close the churches on Easter weekend? That's going <laughs> to lose everything. He was a step away from doing that. It's yeah, very pretty close. much. I can't, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> we got a panic on our hands on Christmas Mass. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's and and a lot of the, the horror stuff there doesn't work like there's a whole scene where the rod Steiger priest is doing the whole thing about like praying to god and then the statue falls on him and he's blind oh, terrible god. awful scene <laughs> oh yeah that's rough what did you think of the remake it's been a very long time i didn't rewatch okay. it here i think I, re- okay. <laughs> I think i first watched it in 2005 and i haven't watched it since i don't remember but I'm guessing yeah, you, I actually you... caught that at the show. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a remake. <laughs> it's, it's no better. It's no worse, in my opinion. Well, we have to emphasize it's one of what eighteen different Amityville movies. <laughs> oh my god! I, there's, I mean, it's. I swear to God, if you went to a red box right now and typed in Amityville, I can almost guarantee there'd be at least one in there. It's a name of a town, so mm-hmm. people just make their low budget horror movies and slap the word Amityville on it. So it, just for a title recognition, which I mean, honestly, is a pretty smart thing. To make a couple bucks, but oh boy, yeah, it's like a less offensive version of say remaking Night of the Living Dead because it's in public domain. Because at least you're just desecrating a stupid, not true story <laughs> as opposed to anything else. And admittedly, most of them are garbage. I haven't seen all of them, obviously, because I value my time somewhat. I mean, this one's all right. I kind of like two, even though it's a very sleazy, even more I... offensive movie because it's about the DeFeo family. So it's like. Right. The real but thing. I actually, yeah. I actually prefer to because yeah. of that. Because it's so like sleazy and just. And then you get to three three D, and you're like, oh boy. Well, that movie, you're just like, I'm bored. I'm bored. Is that Meg Ryan? I'm bored. <laughs> right. I'm bored. <laughs> and I, I don't know. From there, it's pretty dicey. I think that's the only ones I've seen, other than the remake. I think that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, let's get back to this one. So, do you at least? Uh, agree with me about the fact that Marco Kidder and James Rowan are a good couple. They look good together. They they have a good banter with each other, and uh, especially because of her. I mean, she, she steals this movie. Hmm. This is some of the best acting she's done. I think she's so lovable and likable in this movie. It's a very different role than like obviously she was most famous for playing Lois Lane, who was a lot more kind of feisty. As opposed to here, this is a much more delicate performance. It's much more, but not in a way that like makes her lose any kind of agency. She really wants this relationship to work as much as James Brolin does initially. And then as he gets more tortured, she's really trying to like heave him up. And it feels very genuine. I think it really carries the movie significantly. And they're just really good scenes of them together. Like when she's like doing her little stretches and he comes in, they start having sex. That feels like a very genuine moment, especially between two people who clearly are, like I said, in their mid thirties to early forties, they're, you know, trying to come back into this sort of like early part of a relationship, a new house, lots of responsibilities. I think it builds a better base than necessarily the horror deserves perhaps. Yeah, I agree, and I don't know if you picked up on it too, but I almost got this underlying where it's like, they know that at their age, this is probably it for them, mm-hmm. as far as relationship goes. So they're, she's, especially she is willing to do whatever it takes to keep it together. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, but and also there's that tug and pull of like the kids, you can feel the sort of tension between Brolin and the kids, that's still kind of lingering there, and she wants things to work out. I love the scene, the, the bit where um, after the whole babysitter gets stuck in the closet, which is a dumb scene, though. It's a, not very scary. <laughs> it's, no, um, not at all. Right, but the reaction to it I find very interesting and I found really palpable, especially when um, the daughter says, oh, he yelled at me. It's like, well, he should open the damn door <laughs> and then leaves. Very believable parent moment. 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and Brolin, I think, like, he may go over the top, but I would argue it feels realistic for somebody who has having all these, like, compounding issues of, like, he's trying to start this, you know, he's trying to carry this relationship that's new, he's still trying to kind of work through some stuff on his own, um, he's got the, the business at the same time. I can f- believe a lot of that tension. He doesn't skip on hair product either. Like, his beautiful flowing mane is just perfect the whole time. He looks looks fantastic in this movie. Looking like every father figure of the 70s. Yep, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's what my dad looked like, I think. I don't know, I don't know him too well. (laughs) (laughs) He was always just chopping wood and being awkward toward his business partners that come up, which I actually really like that scene. That's an example of the grounded horror that I think really works for the movie. I thought that was a really well built up, really crystallizing the tension that's building with him and his the influence over the house, of the house over him and all this other stuff. I, I thought scenes like that, once again, when it's more grounded horror, I think it works tremendously well. And I think would be far better if they just kind of stuck to that instead of the overt stuff. Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, Brolin's best performance was when he just started to slip into the madness. Like, he wasn't all full-blown crazy yet, but like you said, the wood-chopping scene where he's starting to lose his grip. And things are, what are important to him are outweighing the others now, and like, he he just doesn't know what to do except basically be angry all the time. You know, it's hard for me with this movie with certain things because this is one of the ones I saw when I was very, very young and it, it scared the crap out of me when I was a, just a, a, wee boy, a wee baby. But, you know, I've seen it a couple more times throughout the years, getting back into the genre and trying to find and celebrate all the classics. There, there definitely is a lot of good in this movie, but it's just when you get into the backstory and what the real what really happened and everything, it, it makes it a hard movie to swallow. I, no, I, I definitely can see that. I mean, admittingly, it, it, when I was younger, it definitely that sort of hype played into it of just like, oh man, this is like based on a true story. This actually happened. I can't. It, it's going to be so fucked up to watch and all this other stuff. And it didn't quite live up to that. But then watching it now and knowing full and well that this whole Amityville horror thing is horseshit. Um, I could at least play into it more. It's just like, it's like any other based on a true story horror movie, which we should point out that wasn't as common at this point. Like the exorcist kind of played on that with its advertising campaign. Cause it technically was based on some exorcisms that took place. Right. Texas Chainsaw was... played with it a little bit. Yes, that's true. But this, it was very young at this point, that concept. Yeah. And since it's become fucking awful. Well, <laughs> just well like... you already answered my next question is whether or not you thought this might've actually happened. No. <laughs> I, I can believe that George Lutz was an abusive asshole who told mm-hmm. these, these kids had, had something different um, and that changes things. I mean, like I said, that My Amityville Horror, that and also technically, because it, it starts at the Amityville house, uh, Conjuring 2 are the best Amityville adaptations that have happened. Um, and we should point out the Warrens were also involved in this. This was one of the things that made their careers as TV psychics. And those are people who... I don't believe a fucking word of what they do, but also find them fascinating. Not not a word of it. Yeah. (laughs) Not a word of it. I've gone, done some research on them, just, you know, not research. I can't say, like, I sat here with a notepad and stuff and wrote shit down and I used a highlighter. But I've gone down the rabbit hole on the internet reading about them. And I mean, several cases, if I'm not mistaken, even Amityville might be one of them, where they were asked to leave. Now, I know what happened in the Einfeld haunting, which was also uh, Conjuring 2. That was the main one. They told him get get out of here. They weren't there nearly as long as they were made out to be in the movie. 
But does that affect how you say watch those Conjuring movies? Does that make them lesser movies? Knowing that, um, no, not 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 in particular. And I think a lot of that has to do with you know the direction and the acting. No, I, I guess not. Right. Yeah, and I don't necessarily feel that way either. I think it, it definitely I've been inundated with enough of these based on a true story horror movies to just kind of accept the fact of like, well, they're gonna most likely 100% be bullshit unless it's based on, you know, like a real serial killer or something like that. Otherwise, and even then, they blemish that shit all, a lot, all the time. But I, I do want to go back to, in terms of the more overt horror stuff that I really find to be garbage, um, I will say that the whole sequence where George falls through, becomes covered in blood, and the dog starts licking him is genuinely one of the worst edited scenes I've ever seen in the movie. I, it's unbelievably choppy and bad. Yes. I, I, I mean, it is so bad. I don't understand. I mean, obviously they had a, a smaller budget, but not that small in 1979. $5 million is a, budget, a decent budget. A lot of movies that get made today, horror movies, don't have a $5 million budget. And it shows that their reach definitely exceeds their grasp at points. But that's why I just wonder, why don't you just do more scares? Like, you know, the one... I think really effective bigger scare is the fly thing with Rod Stagger in the house. I think that is actually a genuinely well-built scare moment. And even the use of the get out bit is one to be fair, very overplayed by moderns perspectives. Cause good God, um, to the point where the Simpsons parodied that with the first Treehouse of horror in 1990. <laughs> like that's how oh, overplayed God, that's that how fucking long is. That's been going. Oh, God. <laughs> no, you're a hundred percent right. But, Yes, that is absolutely the most effective horror scare scene in the movie, without a doubt. Uh, the rest of it, like I said, it comes off a little silly in parts. Like the uh, red eyes thing. Come on. Or my my favorite of the hauntings, just on a like weird level, is the when it steals $15,000. Why don't more haunted houses just steal money? <laughs> I, I have... What is, what is the ghost need 15 Gs for? <laughs> Look, I won't put a loan down on myself. I feel like I've earned it. <laughs> Look, they're gonna break my legs if I don't get. I've had a bad string of luck. <laughs> they're gonna break my stairs. <laughs> I bet and... it all on the ponies. <laughs> I will also say we mentioned the editing. It's a shame of like the ending bit with the editing because I think there's some really impressive stuff that also is showcased here. Like I love the whole thing where Elsa Raven is touring them around the house. And you also get the DeFeo thing at the same time. I think that's a great use of Lilo Schifrin's score as well, in terms of just the immediate shock of seeing the actual events followed by the normal touring around the house. Which, it's one of the rare times, because Lilo Schifrin's score is also incredibly obnoxious, and I would argue influenced a lot of other horror movies that use just loud noises to scare people with the music. Yeah, and that's one of my least favorite things in horror movies in general, is the where they rely on the over-bombastic score to elicit a jump. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> you know, I don't, I'm not really a big fan of, you know, things popping into camera to, to scare you. Because to me, it's not scary, it's just startling. They even but, did the fucking cat thing in this movie, which I think even I by know. 79 was overdone. Right? It's got to be. It had to have been. It's been done to death. That's like Universal Monster era. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the, the black cat and the original cat people and all that. They they all did it. I mean, they still do. I mean, the pet cemetery and I mean, it's just on and on and on and on. It's just to me that just shows that you don't have strong enough material 
to where you have to manipulate the audience in that type of way with a loud noise or a quick image to get a jump out of them. Yeah, and this movie is very guilty of that. Even the like eyes thing, which one of my favorite just behind the scenes things is apparently when that was going on on the set, Stuart Rosenberg had a thing uh, to, in order to show Margot Kidder what they wanted. Had like a it's like a vinyl sort of pig mask thing that was supposed to be really scary. And on the take where she didn't know it was going to happen, she just laughed. <laughs> oh, well, that doesn't bode well, does it? No, which is like <laughs> That's oh, awful. Let's not do that. And so they did this, which is whatever. They make good use of the house in terms of like you know like the evil eyes and all that other stuff. I think it's it's a very iconic house to the point where the actual owners of the house I think is in the last few years have turned them into like circular eyes, as right? Opposed, yeah, just to avoid the press of it. Yeah, that's one thing you can say if you show anybody who's a fan of the genre just those windows, they know exactly what it is. Yes. I mean, it's very very iconic. Also, I, I will say, this movie is an interesting parade of different character actors that are impressive, like Murray Hamilton's one I mentioned. One that I was just like, that lady looks familiar, is Elsa Raven as the realtor. I was just like, where have I seen her before? She's the lady in Back to the Future who says, save the clock tower! Save the clock tower! I'm like, oh, uh, fuck! That is her. Yes. Yeah. And I've seen her plenty of times. Don Stroud, who's in Dirty Harry, amongst other things. Oh, James Tolkien plays the coroner, who, speaking of Back to the Future, is the school principal in uh, oh, those yeah. movies. I, he's the school principal in everything he's in. Or a cop. I love that guy. That guy's so great. Oh, I'll say, you know, and to go back slightly to the Warrens thing, did you notice the little shout-out to a certain doll? No. There's a point where James Rowland goes up and he sees a Raggedy Ann doll on the chair, which was the actual Annabelle doll oh, in real yes. life. Yes. Uh, you know, I don't know why he didn't place that. Yeah, of course. Woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> shout-out to all my Annabelle fans out there, shout y'all. Out, shout-out to the Warrens. <laughs> so, well, you know, an interesting thing is going back and hearing about people who were originally considered for parts. In, instead of Brolin, uh, the original consideration was Harrison Ford, right after Star Wars came out, to play the part. Um, but also Burt Reynolds, James Caan, and Christopher Reeve. Which, I think of those, Christopher Reeve would be interesting, in the same way that he was also considered for Jack Torrance in The Shining, um, in terms of playing into like a very charming, likable guy going crazy like that. I think he especially could have pulled that off really well. Yeah, I could see him as this. I I don't know about Jack Torrance, but yeah, I could definitely see him as George Lutz. You know, but this movie, Brolin wasn't really doing much until this movie. He was doing a lot of television work and everything, but he never really hit it, hit anything really major. And he he was sort of on the downslide, and then this came, and I mean, it made him a huge star again. After that, uh, A Star is Born remake he did with Streisand in like 76, that really killed his career. (laughs) Yeah, it really did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, oh boy. But then, uh, you know, I I think we got the best choice out of all of them, though. Yeah, and plus he made a pretty wise decision on this, where because it was a modest budget, he just said, "Oh no, just give me like ten percent of the gross." Which, given uh, the big success of it, he made seventeen million, which roughly in twenty eighteen dollars would have been fifty eight million dollars. So he didn't maybe need the work after this. Yeah, no, nah, he did all right. <laughs> he, did, he, pulled, that was a, he, he, he pulled it off. He pulled what we call now a Jack Nicholson Batman deal. Right. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> or Tom Cruise deal on anything he does. That's true, yes. Um, the, the deal that now everybody's like, don't fucking give him that. <laughs> right. 
But I guess final thoughts over on the Amityville Horror, Adam? All right. Well, as far as the true story goes, it's not. I mean, that's horse shit. Amityville Horrors, I mean, come on. No way. But as far as it being a staple of the genre and a classic that if you're a fan of the genre and you haven't seen it, then, I mean, you got to check it out at least once. If anything, just to see where all the 19 fucking thousand shit sequels have come from. To see where it started. I haven't read the book. I heard the book's pretty good, but yeah, yeah, I don't think I need to. For me, like I said, when I was younger, this one kind of was an example of the hype backlash thing we talk about, um, where I was built up about, oh, amazing true story, horror, all this other stuff, that I was fascinated to see it and I became disappointed by it. I think watching it now with those sort of lower memories and expectations, I think it holds up as a solid little haunted house movie. Uh, mainly when it's very grounded. I think, like I said, if they cut out most of the stuff that we really don't need that's like more overtly, obviously horror-driven that feels just kind of big and dumb, it it would be a, a nuanced sort of interesting family drama that just so happens to also have a horror sort of backing to it. And I think that would, once again, make this a lot more interesting. And if anything, makes it ripe for a remake. Like I said, I don't remember the Ryan Reynolds remake. I don't know if it really took advantage of that. But I think... It um, did not. It did not. <laughs> spoilers. Um, <laughs> but especially in a modern age where we have a lot of these sort of like A24 horror movies, a lot more grounded, a lot more simple, I think this is ripe for a low-budget remake that I think could capitalize on that with some pretty solid stars. Like I could see you know, something like an Ethan Hawke, for example, I think would be a really good modern George Lutz. Yeah, I think... Uh... Even though he just got cast in Pet Cemetery, but like Jason Clark, right? Good example. Would be really good. Yes, somebody like that. And what about the Margot Kidder part? Oh man, that's a hard one. Uh, I'll say others. I think I'll say someone for me, Rebecca Hall. You might recognize from The Gift, amongst other things. I think would be really good. Yeah, she would be good. Yeah, yeah, I'd go with that one. I like her. Very yeah, good. I could see. Yeah, that. Yes, yes, we are that's in agreement, fine. sir. But uh, speaking of very good, let's go to the polar opposite of oh, with fuck. our. Second feature, Wired. 1982, John Belushi, the fabulous comedy star of TV's Saturday Night Live, Animal House, and The Blues Brothers, is dead at the age of 33. 1984, his story becomes a book by Bob Woodward, the prize-winning author of All the President's Men. You know, this could be one of those stories we've always talked about, that whole Hollywood drug scene out there. 1989, the man and the book become the motion picture that Hollywood never wanted to be made. Wired, the laughs and times of John Belushi. Oh, God. So, Adam, our last episode, all uh, where we talked about the Star Wars Holiday Special, Adam apologized because he felt that it was such a terrible thing. And I said to Adam, like, off camera, like, look, it's fine, whatever, it's cool. I genuinely am sorry that you had to sit through this. Oh, man. You know what? You fucking should be. No, I, 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 I should be. I'm also apologizing to myself, and I'm also punching myself in the face, because I was curious about this, because for those of you who don't know what this is, Wired is based on a book by Bob Woodward, who, yes, is the one of the guys that brought down Nixon, who wrote a book about the life of John Belushi not too long after he passed away, and it was considered very controversial when it was published, especially amongst people like... Judith Belushi, who was his widow, and also Dan Aykroyd, who considered it to be basically be, I think someone described it, I think accurately, as it's like if you read a book about Michael Jordan and how awesome he was at basketball, but walked away from it thinking that he wasn't a very good basketball player. All the facts are there, 
but it really presents them without much interesting context. It actually gives you a reason why Belushi was so beloved. And I read Wired when I was in high school. It was in my high school library. And I was falling in love with a lot of, like, the older Belushi stuff. Like, as a kid, I'd seen Animal House and Blues Brothers, and I think he's a great comedic talent um, that obviously shaped a lot of comedy that would follow. But I also was, at the time, Netflix had the actual old catalog of SNL seasons up when you could actually find any of those clips, which you can't really at all unless they post yeah, on which YouTube Yeah, which is crazy. Channel. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah, especially when I was a kid, I even watching that, I'm just like, oh man, they're going to take this down, I'm sure, at some point. But I managed to watch especially the, that era, the not ready for primetime players. And Belushi, I mean, I think you can agree, Adam, a, a wonderful comedic talent, one of the best of that 20th century, especially. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you already mentioned the two movies, Animal House and Blues Brothers, are definitely part of what shaped... Uh, what I like in comedies and my love for the comedic genre. Those are, I mean, those two movies are just fantastic, and he steals both of them. And even in not good movies, because he didn't do many movies, obviously, because he had a very short life in general. But yeah, he the, only did like six or seven movies total. Yeah, and even the ones that he's he did that weren't too great, he at least stood out. In like 1941 is a giant mess of a movie, but he is funny in it when you know <laughs> he's somewhat kind of reined in. That's a whole other can of worms. Um, and even like Continental Divide isn't a great movie, but it's an interesting dramatic performance from him. So they made this book that was very much sort of decried for being exploitative. And then, um, someone decided, let's make a movie out of that. But instead of presenting it as, you know, like a sort of biopic, let's make it a weird Christmas Carol story where we start off with Belushi being led to the morgue and then rising out of his body bag doing literally the Bluto thing from Animal House of, like, stalking around and, like, hopping from place to place. They did Scrooge. They had him in the, That's the, true. In the, in the taxi cab. I mean, yeah. what the fuck? I'm watching this, I'm going, no. No, this isn't. Oh, no. This is in the first five minutes of the movie. Yes, yes. That this happens, and then he goes with his guardian angel, played by Ray Sharkey, and oh. at the same time, there's a whole subplot with Bob Woodward investigating, and then there's also flashbacks where Belushi's performing with Dan Aykroyd, or as they clearly casted for Kevin Nealon. That dude looks way more like Kevin Nealon than he ever does Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> because of the quality of the uh, the version I watched, I honestly thought it was when I first saw him. <laughs> you thought it was Kevin Nealon? I thought it was Kevin fucking Nealon. I'm like, <laughs> Kevin Nealon played Dan Aykroyd? Oh, that's... Oh. <laughs> I would actually liked it more. If I, don't think, I don't think he would have been an SNL if he was in this movie, because I think Lorne Michaels would have said, get the fuck out of here if you he, dare yeah. show up in this. Which, by oh. the way, there is a Lorne Michaels-esque surrogate, along with there's one for, like, John Landis and a couple other people, because they're like, fuck you, you can't use this. Because, like, they only really show Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, and I don't even think they name anybody else that would have been important in this not that I, Not that I can remember, no. I don't think they did. Um, Look, I will say, Chickless... Michael no, Chiklis, who plays Michael Belushi. Michael Chiklis plays Belushi. You know, the commish. He did the best he could with what he had, man. No, especially, this is very interesting, because this was his first job right out of college. He auditioned literally right. for this right after graduating, and went through several auditions for, like, three years, went through, like, so many different hundreds of auditions, and then finally got this. And, you know, he's talked about this. When you're yeah. 25 and you're starring as, like, John Belushi in a biopic, you think, oh, I'm made already. This is great. And it ended up really hurting his career early on, because everyone's like, fuck you. You play Belushi in that fucking exploitative piece of shit movie. He's like, I, I t no. Yeah, I heard him on Marin, on Marin's mm -hmm. podcast, and that's exactly basically what he was saying. He's like, dude, he's like, I didn't know 
that not only did they look at all these other actors that they had hired other actors other actors quit because of the heat on it so by the time it got to him he was like oh my god yes i'll absolutely i mean like you said starring as john belushi and it just crushed his career and it's a shame because like you said he is very much trying any any scene where he is tasked to sort of do the belushi things like it starts off actually with him doing the like i'm a king b thing which was sort of the very early ur text of the blues brothers He's giving it his all. He's really committing to it. The Blues Brothers scenes that show up, or Brothers Blues, as they put in the movie, because once again, fuck, or like any of the SNL bits. Why make it? Why make this movie if you don't have the rights to any of it? Any of the SNL bits are like clearly like these people trying to write that very clear, distinct 1970s to very early 80s SNL. And doing a terrible job of it. Like, there's a whole scene where Belushi is talking to the Dan Aykroyd guy who's playing Nixon as a conehead. Why? Why I don't. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I was watching. Going, this didn't actually exist, did it? Also, there's what's the joke? Like, why is Nixon a conehead? I don't Who know. Is he talking to? <laughs> the only reason is because Bob Woodward he had connection to Nixon. So, like, right. oh, let's put that in there. But even then, like, Dan Aykroyd played Nixon. You could have just done a Nixon sketch, but it's like, you know what, let's add another thing, because remember Coneheads? You like Coneheads, right? Oh, God. Yeah, no, dude. Look, he got the voice down. He, you know, he put in contacts, so his eyes would be the same color. He got, he tried to do the singing. He tried to do the moving and the dancing and the cartwheels and all that shit. He did all right. I mean, he wasn't fantastic. You could tell it was his first major role, but he did okay. It's everything else around him is just awful it feels very cheap it feels underwhelming oh. it, it's just and, and this was supposed to be at the fucking theater like yeah that's what i was, it, it looks like a shitty made for tv movie well and keep in mind like for those who don't know um admittingly we i the main reason i did this was because i did find it on youtube because it is not commercially available in any form even no it, yeah only, you can't find it it only came out on vhs and even then that's out of print and there's no dvd or blu-ray possible and i just stumbled upon it while I was, like, searching for things on, for, like, hmm, bo- like, based on a true story, hmm, wired, this should be interesting, and it's interesting, but in an incredibly offensive way. Yeah, like, for all the wrong reasons. Like, let's talk more about the Bob Woodward thing, which feels also very exploitative in terms of mm-hmm. he's investigating about, like, the sort of seedy elements, and there's so many scenes where they're trying to be sort of a Sid and Nancy style thing to the point where they literally steal the music from Sid and Nancy. <laughs> In uh, one scene uh, uh, of just like, oh, this is, you know, grimy 80s cocaine using heroin all at the same time. It feels grimy. Even if this was in crystal clear HD, I would still feel sickened by what's going on here. It just feels so much, especially yeah. when it, it contrasts so much with the weird attempts at the actual comedy. And it never feels like it works. Did you laugh once? No. Um, no, me neither. The only times I might have chuckled were where I'm like, holy fucking shit, you're doing this? Yeah. I, and, you know, the worst thing for me is a bad comedy. Bad comedies are the worst movies. If you can't laugh when someone is trying desperately to make you laugh, it becomes almost torturous. This movie is torturous. But even the drama also doesn't feel like it's so bad it's funny. No, you're it not feels... invested at all. No. Not at all, and it, it's just, there's so many scenes where, like you said, Michael Chiklis is trying hard. Like, there are several scenes where it's him and Dan Aykroyd, and Dan Aykroyd's like, hey, uh, you're using a lot of coke. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> and he's like, oh, God. Yeah, I, I know, maybe I shouldn't, but we have fun. <laughs> and it's really dumb. 
and it's and it never works. And then especially when you have this, like you mentioned, Scrooge Christmas Carol element of the Ray Sharkey character who won. Well, oh god, the racial super racist because oh, Ray Sharkey so racist. It's like I Ray Sharkey was super Italian and this is being super like clearly Hispanic. What? What? <laughs> what is going on? I cannot believe that they thought that this would work. I don't understand what part of this they thought would work at any stage at all. It at just... all. Like as far as I know, there was I mean maybe there was, I don't think there was a conspiracy about whether Belushi actually killed himself or if he was killed. Dude. Right. Which is the whole that's Bob so in poor taste to even put on screen to where, oh yeah, his wife doesn't think he was actually OD'd and I mean, come on. Especially considering this is eighty nine. This is only like seven years after. Right. Right. It's like even if they made this movie today, thirty plus years later, it would still be like, oh God. Offensive. Right. Especially since so was... many of these people are like still alive. <laughs> Could yeah. Be... Which I know that, like, there have been attempts in the last, especially few years, to make a John Belushi movie. Last I heard, Emil Hirsch was going to, like, gain a lot of weight and play the role, which would be interesting. Um, yeah, he kind of screwed himself a little bit there, though. <laughs> Look, he screwed himself in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. I think there is a good movie to make out of John Belushi's life that I don't want to be this, but at the same time, I don't necessarily want to be overly sanitized either, because I could usually see it being that way, and it just ends up being less interesting. It's all the worries I have, like, about Bohemian Rhapsody. That movie yes. that's coming out. Yes, that guy, yes, yes. Everyone's like, oh my god, that trailer. It's like, yeah, but they're probably going to really skirt a lot of the lines that oh, yeah, Freddie Mercury gonna... crossed. Absolutely. And, which is un- not uncommon in biopics. Because there's a lot to talk about even that in a negative way about Belushi in terms of like Jane Curtin's come out and admitted that while they were making SNL, he was very much one of those guys who would be like Christopher Hitchens now. Like, women aren't funny. You don't have a natural impulse to make people laugh. Unfortunately, Which, that was a lot of those guys back then. That's true, but I think... Like you Chevy could, Chase was, is like that, I mean... What? I'm know. so shocked. Chevy know, Chase is right. an asshole? No. <laughs> 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 There's something you could make out of that. I think that that would be a very but, interesting, but complex bio. Do you need a Belushi movie? I mean, honestly, do you need it? I, Anything I, you want to know about the man, you can find. Right. You know, do you need an hour and a half, two hours to tell you anything that you can already find right now? I don't know if you necessarily need that. Uh, that's the thing. I wouldn't necessarily focus entirely on Belushi at the same time. I think what would be interesting is, say, a movie about that era of SNL, like the start of SNL, and make it an ensemble dramedy movie. That I could get behind, for sure. That'd Something, be interesting. Kind of similar to they did the National Lampoon that got, about Doug Kenny. That was on yeah, Netflix I didn't recently. watch that yet. Any good? It's good. I don't think it's great, but I think, they, I think that sort of idea could be very interesting um and I, I think you know there are a lot of people who would appear in you know people who play the people that would be in that movie who are in that one that could be interesting like tom lennon plays um the i forgot his name but the the, the guy who co-wrote scrooged uh with bill murray um oh okay a, i know what you're talking about yeah I, that, that, I can't remember the writer's name but yeah. the, the crazy weird hunter s thompson right. style writer that was on uh, SNL for a bit, and that's fun. And I would like even some of those cast members to appear in something like that. A sort of spinoff movie would be interesting. But especially when you have like a lot of the SNL scenes to go back to it, all are so poorly put together. Feel like they're in a dingy nightclub in this movie. Yeah. And the Lauren oh, Michaels yeah. they get is terrible. And when you watch this movie and you have those comedic beats that are poorly played, like we didn't even mention the samurai. 
thing. At the oh, baseball. for God's sake! It's a bit that never ends, and it's all dick jokes. And it's like, yeah, those yep. that era of SNL. There's plenty of bad sketches, but none of them were that dead in terms of comedy. No, and I mean that's another thing too. I'm glad you point that out. There are scenes in this movie that carry on for way too long, poorly edited. Just yeah, endless. I mean, what the fuck? Did you need to see them perform the entire Soul Man song? No, did you also need them to perform the autopsy and have the Japanese guy turn into a samurai? <laughs> I mean, did Belushi. I? Maybe, but it wasn't necessary. I don't and, know. And have Chiklis doing Belushi doing Brando while on the autopsy table and the oh, laugh track. Sakes. That's that oh. is that's a key example of the sort of tone deafness of this movie that really skirts into offensiveness, where it's just, I, I can't believe you would have ever thought this was a good idea. And I'm honestly offended that you would ever consider doing this. It just, I don't I, know what they're going for, even. With I don't movie. either. That's the problem. I don't know what they were trying to do. It's not a drama. You don't give a shit about any character in the movie, because it's not them. It, you can tell none of these characters are portrayed the way they were. You can just, you can just tell. And the comedy falls 100% flat and is borderline offensive and it sometimes is offensive. It's just this movie is literally for no one except for maybe the guy who wrote it. <laughs> Which I do love like in the ads and stuff uh, that I could find. It was all about the movie that Hollywood didn't want to make. And it's like, yeah, because who would want to make this movie? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. nobody, exactly. The ho- movie Hollywood you want to make. Because it sucks. Because it's garbage. And I, I will say, like, I'm not someone who usually says, like, oh, I'm incredibly offended by this. I found this distasteful, usually. But when you have scenes like the one for me, the big climactic scene, where Bob Woodward's been investigating, he's been talking to the dealer who was with Belushi during like, his last hours, all this other stuff. When he is investigating the room where Belushi died, and you see a Belushi there, you see Michael Chiklis, and you think, oh, this is like some kind of fantasy thing, but he's there that we can only see he can't, because they have that trope in this movie. They literally do the, like, they can't hear you. These are only visions of the present that you can't see, or whatever the fuck, from A Christmas Carol. All of a sudden, Belushi starts talking to Bob Woodward, and Bob Woodward says stuff like, oh, you know, Dan Aykroyd called you America's guest. Why would you put a needle in your arm? Is it because I need it? That was really the moment that this went from, this is a terrible movie, to this movie can go fuck itself. Because that's awful. Egotistical bullshit. That this guy, the whole movie, no one could see him, but the guy who writes it somehow has a special ethereal connection with Belushi's ghost. Get the fuck over yourself. I mean, dude, what? Yeah, Hollywood didn't want it. You're goddamn right. Because it's shit. It's pure offensive shit. Oh I can't God. believe that this movie even got financed. And the balls then to end the movie on him doing the Joe Cocker impression with, by the way, Billy Preston playing himself, doing the backing, which I'm like, what? What are you doing here, Billy? Get they got out. one guy. They got one guy. But, <laughs> but And not even doing like the, the little help from my friends thing, but doing the you are so beautiful, which makes it even worse because it's just like, oh, now you like Belushi. Now Belushi's this big, you know, talent that why did we lose him? Even though you keep exploiting how you lost him. And you do stuff you like... spent an hour and 20 minutes to divide how much of a piece of shit he was in life. It's... And then the last 15 minutes you give him a redemption song. Get the fuck out of here. And also, like, something we didn't even mention, like, the fantasy angle of it also tries to posit this whole thing of, like, Belushi keeps begging for his life, and there's a terrible, like, Seventh Seal parody where it's like, oh, instead of playing chess, they're playing Blues Brothers Pinball Machine. 
and there's supposed to be tension, I guess, of like, <laughs> is Belushi going to go back into his body and keep living? Why? Oh, I don't know. I Why? Don't, I, I, I don't know. So you've read the book, you said. None of that's in the book, is it? Well, no, some of it is. I mean, uh, the, not the not the like fucking Christmas Carol bullshit, but some of these things are ripped from the pages. Like, for example, this, the John Landis scene where he goes inside of John Belushi's trailer and punches him. That's in the book, though John Landis himself has said that's bullshit. Has said it never happened. Yeah, also, by the way, um, another exploitive little bit where they're just like, oh, hey, let's have John Landis walk into the trailer while a helicopter sound goes over. That is so in poor taste. It's not even funny. Like, like you that know, is so fucked up. Not even thinking about Landis. That's just horrible to do. That's horrible. General. Yeah. Yeah. No. Not nothing to do with Landis. Period. Because you know Landis, whatever, might have been at fault for some of that. But the fact that there was a horrible thing that happened, they're going to make light of it. What? Are you two years, three years after that happened? Especially when it's just like, that has nothing to do with any of this, really, except John Landis is vaguely there. That's very much important. And it feels just like they're doing because John Landis wouldn't let them say his name. Sort of like, oh, here's a knife twist in there. Oh, that's yeah. exactly what it is. There's a fuck you to him. That's it's exactly a, what it is. It's a movie that constantly feels bitter. Just, it's, it's yeah, that's simmering a very good way to with bitterness. It. Yeah, that's a very, because nobody wanted to take part in it. So they're like, all right, well, we're going to do it anyway, so we're going to fucking rake you all over the coals. It feels like the sort of older equivalent of the modern example of like, oh yeah, this is what edgy is, guys. Look how, like, it feels like a movie that's written and directed by a 15-year-old. Because it thinks like, oh man, this is fucked up. Look at the grimy Hollywood scene. And here's John Belushi. Everybody likes him, but guess what? He did drugs and he was shitty to people. And now we're going to exploit that. But it's going to be cool because we're the real storytellers. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do we have any final thoughts about Wired? I, I mean, look, I was watching with my wife earlier and she said, if this is supposed to be a PSA, it's failing. If it's supposed to be a comedy, it's failing. This movie fails on everything. It's not a don't do drugs story. It's not a do drugs story. It's not look how funny things can be when you're on drugs. It's not look how shitty your life can be when it's on drugs. It's nothing. This movie has nothing to say for itself. Period. Yes, I will second all of that. I am fascinated with movies about figures like this. Figures who really impacted pop culture, but at the same time have dark pasts, have intriguing, you know, stuff behind them. I love, you know, and one that's, you know, for example, I'm looking at my DVD shelf right now. One movie that I know takes a lot of liberties and is very weird. One that I um, would have nominated if I had the good side, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Not that's probably realistic movie. at probably all. Probably not true. Not right, at all. But it's a but great movie. It's an interesting movie that actually uses a lot of the sort of rumors around Chuck Bears to make an interesting movie about sort of that era of television and also a spy thriller at the same time, which, mm-hmm. you know, I, if you're going to make true stories that bend the truth, I think doing something that's fantastical but kind of stays true to the weird spirit of that person, I think is mm-hmm. what the way you need to go. Versus this right. isn't staying true to that spirit at all. It's right, very I much... would throw, like, a Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in there. Great example. Yes, I would concur with that. Because, uh, once again, that's a movie based on a retelling of a guy talking about being on a lot of drugs. Interesting fact was that a early version of the adaptation was going to star Dane Aykroyd and John Belushi as the characters. Oh, boy. Uh... Uh, that could have been interesting. If <laughs> and tragic. then you got Bill Murray, who went on to do it, <laughs> and wear the Buffalo Realm. Yes. Not a great movie. Not at all. Not a great movie. Um, but where was I going? Oh, yeah, Wired can go fuck itself. That's where I was going. Um, 
I agree. There's also a whole thing now, especially in like a modern streaming age of like, oh man, we're losing such classic cinema. So many movies don't end up being like restored and go forgotten. It, this is one of the few genuine examples where I am very happy it is forgotten. It is buried. I almost wanted to report the YouTube thing that was on there, not for copyright reasons, but just so it doesn't see the light of day. It doesn't deserve that. It does not deserve to exist. And I never say that about art, even art that I do not like. But this is something that deserves to not ever be seen again. This is It's like one of those things, it should be in the warehouse where the fucking Ark of the Covenant is. Just... Put it in there. <laughs> Never right. let it just be looked just over by... it with the E.T. games. Let it be looked <laughs> over by top men. Never to be seen again. Yeah, it's it's pure. Just pure shit. Pure tripe. Plain and simple. Well, at least we had a lot of fun talking about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and before we go, uh, the end of our show here, I want to read some feedback from our buddy Jeff L., who was talking about our second episode about the rundown in Miami connection when he says, hi, Thomas and Adam, a really good podcast, especially because both movies were sufficiently fun and slash or had interesting backstories, which made them worth discussing. You guys have similar interests and tastes. Cannot wait to hear when those interests collide. I'm looking forward to more episodes. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. You're a scholar and a gentleman. Yes. Um, and we also want to thank another scholar and gentleman, Chris Oliver, who does the music for our show. You can listen to yeah, more of his... you're pushing it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and listen to more of his music over at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. And uh, we would love to hear feedback from you guys, and we recommend that you do so by either emailing us at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, or follow us and tweet over at us at dedbpod. Um, and you can also do that at our own accounts that are individual. I am at not the who's Tommy on Twitter and Adam at Malekith fan six, nine, six, nine, never gets old. Nope. That's never going away. And also, by the way, she mentioned, you can also read my reviews. I do movie reviews all the time and critical essays at Mariani Thomas dot wordpress.com. That's M A R I A N I Thomas dot wordpress.com. I just put up a solo review that you can read now. That's a movie. Yeah, that's that, that exists. <laughs> Yeah, I got nothing. I don't do anything on the internet anymore. <laughs> no, he's, you, he nope. might just like a tweet that I did. That, that's yeah, all that's probably about does it. Besides the show. Yeah. Um, and look forward to our next episode. But until then, Adam, we gotta get to the true story about you. Why Why did you do that? Why did you put a needle in your arm, Adam? Felt, felt like the right thing to do. I, I mean, what? You know, I agree with that. Give me that needle. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Good night. <laughs>